chapter 8 this morning, brothers and sisters, friends, family, visitors, we're glad you're here. Chapter 8, Bible's in the back. We're going uh, from chapter 11, uh, excuse me, chapter 8, verse 11, through chapter 9, verse 7. That's our scripture lesson for this morning, so have your Bibles open there. I'll read it to you when we get there. Uh, chapter 8, verse 11 through chapter 9, verse 7. We're calling, again, this series, The Gospel According to Isaiah. Isaiah is the most quoted Old Testament prophet in all the New Testament, and God has, in a, in a wonderful and glorious way, revealed the truth of the gospel through this wonderful Old Testament prophet, Isaiah, um, probably in any other prophetic book in the Old Testament. We see Jesus in his glory. We'll see it today in, in a great way. The first five chapters in Isaiah, we saw that God was calling his people into account for their sin, their covenant-breaking sin. One of the, the main themes we saw in the first several chapters, five chapters, is the theme of pride, right? People don't like to be told what to do. And if you remember, this was a time during a king, a king of Judah. His name is uh, Uzziah. Uh, excuse me, yeah, who's the king? Come on, everybody. Did I get that right? I get that right. Let me go turn. Yeah. And Uzziah was, was a good king, a beloved king. I mean, he had some issues, had some problems we know as well. Um, but he had brought the nation uh, and, the, and, and Judah and Jerusalem to some prosperity. And they were doing well. And sometimes when we do well, uh, pride becomes an issue, right? So prosperity and pride sometimes, many times, go hand in hand. And what you find, and what we find, they found, is that when things went really well, they began to turn their back on God. They began to not trust God. If you remember, Uzziah, the king of Judah, also was, was not only doing well himself, but him too got caught up in that issue of pride and went into the temple, if you remember, to offer sacrifices, which only the priest was supposed to do. Uh, and then God, what struck him with uh, leprosy, and he died uh, as a man with leprosy. We get to chapter 6. Um, we see if there was any you know, pride or any kind of a personal self-exaltation in uh, Isaiah the prophet. That came crumbling down. Chapter 6 says it was in the year that Uzziah died that Isaiah was brought into the throne room of God where he saw the Lord seated upon a throne and the seraphim were crying out and worshiping, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. The whole earth is full of his glory. Finds himself, Isaiah finds himself in his throne room seeing the majesty and the beauty and the holiness of God and as anyone would find themselves he says I am undone I am a man of unclean lips his sin is ever before him and God has mercy upon Isaiah in chapter 6 as he sees the holiness of God he sees the brokenness of his sin God has mercy upon him and forgives him cleanses him from his sin and removes his guilt an act of God's grace and then Isaiah is sent on mission to go to the nation not only Judah, but other nations, but primarily to go to the nation of Judah with a mission and proclaim the word of God. But the bad news we learn in chapter 6 is Isaiah gives this mission, and then God tells them, listen, the word you're going to speak is only going to make their heart hard, harder. Say that three times. As we get to chapter 7, we looked at last week, and through chapter 9, there's another king. Uzziah, chapter 6, has died. Now King Ahaz is king of Judah. He's the grandson of Uzziah. Uzziah had a son. His name was Jotham. Jotham reigned even while he had leprosy. And now Jotham is dead. And Ahaz, H-A-A-H-A-Z, Ahaz, is king. Now, if you remember from last week, I'm just going to go through this so we're all on the same page. If you remember from last week, you turn in your Bibles to, to Isaiah chapter 7. The context of chapter 7 and chapters 8 and chapter 9, the context is what they call the Syro-Ephraimite war and threat, okay? So let, let's, let's break this down, around 734 to 732 B.C. Now, if you remember, this is Assyria. I got a little red thing here today, okay? Red pointer there. Assyria is, Assyria with an A, is the world power right now. They are the, they are the biggest army and they are threatening all the other nations. Assyria. Okay? 
Syria down here and Israel down here. Now remember, Israel and Judah under Solomon, the nation of Israel, the 12 tribes split in two. Israel to the north, Judah to the south. Israel's city is Samaria. That's their, that's their main city. Syria, their main city is Damascus. So Syria and Israel, also known as Ephraim, are feeling the pressure and threat of Assyria. Syria is looking to conquer land, be the world power. And these two kings, Syria and Israel, you see in chapter 7, verse 1, um, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, these two come together and say, hey, let's, let's join together. Let's have a, an, uh, a, 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 a pact. Let's have an alliance. Two of us is better together, and we could keep Assyria from attacking us, and we could, you know, two's better than one, and we could work together. Sounds like a good idea. So they decide to come together. They say, well, you know what? Let's get Judah to the south, to join us. The king of Judah, as I mentioned, was Uzziah, now it's Ahaz, is like, no, I don't, I don't think so. I, I, I'm not going to join this alliance, uh, especially because when they wanted them to join, they threatened them. It's like, you don't even really get very far with threatening, right? Join us, if not, we'll kill you. It didn't work. So Judah says, you think I know what I'll do? I'll go to Assyria and ask that king for help. You see what's going on. So Judah joins forces with Assyria, has a pact, has an alliance with them because of the threat of Syria and Israel toward Judah. Following that? That's pretty, that's pretty, hopefully you could, you could follow that. They were afraid and uh, Judah was afraid. So Judah went and went to Assyria for help. Now, if you read 2 Chronicles, you can read 2 Kings, you'll find out that Judah's king Ahaz, went to Assyria and looked for help, he was scared. Obviously, Judah's a smaller nation. Judah goes to Assyria, asks for help. Assyria's like, sure, we'll help you. No problem. We'll keep Israel, we'll keep Syria away from you. And what that was, as we learned last week, is that Judah's king, Ahaz, was not being faithful to God. That Ahaz, Judah's king, was not being faithful, was not trusting in the Lord. And we ended last week with God giving Isaiah. Well, first turn with me in chapter 7, verse 2. It says, when the house of David was told, that's Judah, is the only one loyal to David. Chapter 7, verse 2. When the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, that's Israel. The heart of Ahaz, that's the king of Judah, and the heart of his people shook. Like trees and forests shake before the wind. In other words, they were, a very, they were very, very afraid. Isaiah says, Isaiah comes along and says, listen, I have a word from the Lord, King Ahaz of Judah. I have a word from the Lord. Look with me to verse 4. The Lord says to you, King Ahaz of Judah, be careful, be quiet, don't fear. Do not let your heart be faint. The two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of Rezin in Syria and the son of Remaliah. Don't be afraid of those two. You don't need to run to Assyria. Don't be afraid. And of course, we know that Judah, Ahaz, the king of Judah, didn't listen. And God, in his grace, gives, if you remember from last week, two signs through Isaiah to the king to trust him. He gives him a son. Remember, we looked at chapter 7, verse 14, that a son would be born. His name would be as Emmanuel, God with you. God is with you, Judah. God is with you, Ahaz. Trust him. Then in chapter 8, verses 3 through 4, God gives Isaiah, the prophet, a son. Mahashalaha Hashbaz. If you're looking for a name, there's one for you. These two signs were meant to tell God's people, God is with you. Marahashabaz means that Syria is going to fall. Ephraim is going to fall. Israel is going to fall. You could trust God. But he won't listen. So God says to Judah, listen, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to keep my promise. Syria and Israel are going to fall. 
I'm going to allow the Assyrians to come in and I'm going to allow them to decimate Israel and Syria. Assyria is going to decimate Syria and Israel. But, this is where we ended last week, but because you didn't trust me, Judah, because you didn't trust me, King Ahaz, they're not going to stop coming down that fertile crescent down. They're going to come marching into Jerusalem as well because you did not trust me. And I'm going to use that nation as a way in which to chastise you and discipline you for next time you need to trust me. And that's exactly what happened. Assyria marches through down into Syria, into uh, Israel, and then down into Jerusalem. But God stops them from destroying the southern kingdom for the moment. That's where we pick it up. Okay? Chapter 8, verses 11 through 18. Three movements, trust and hope, gloom and doom, triumphant son and king. I know not very pretty, but there's your outline. Trust and hope, gloom and doom, triumphant son. Now, Isaiah, if you got your Bibles open, I hope you do. Isaiah speaks to the nations, chapter 8, verse 9, where we ended last week, and says to the nations, listen, you people, strap your armor, strap your armor, verse 9, take counsel together. In other words, you guys have, have, have worldly wisdom. You all can come together, all the nations, but you know what? It's not going to happen. God is not going to allow you to destroy and decimate Jerusalem. Why? Look at verse 10. For God is with us. There's that remnant. There's that, there's that hope. There's that grace. Verse 11. The strong hand, now Isaiah, the Lord is speaking to Isaiah again, the strong hand is upon me. And I could only imagine that, that Isaiah is saying that, you know, I feel the strong hand of the Lord upon me. Some some way saying his, his, his presence is so heavy. The exhortation I'm about to give is so intense. His hand is heavy upon me. Maybe because he's a leader. Maybe because he has given such a great task. Maybe because the bullseye of the enemy, the, the devil and the world is on his back. And he, and he feels that sense of pressure and he senses the heavy hand of the Lord. Whatever it is, the prophet, the the mouthpiece of God is being told what to do and what not to do, right? Certain things he is to do and certain things he is not to do with his heavy hand upon him. First thing it says, don't talk or join in the conspiracies of the people. Verse 11. Let Let me read that to you. For the Lord spoke thus to me with a strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, do not call conspiracies all this people calls conspiracy. Do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. For the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread. And he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. Bind up the testimony. Seal the teaching among my disciples. Verse 17, I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob. I will hope in him. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwell on Mount Zion. So he tells them, don't join in the conspiracies. The first thing, I don't, I don't want you to join in the conspiracy. And I think what he's saying is, there's a couple of ways of looking at it, but I think what he's saying is, you, you know, the king of, uh, he's saying, Isaiah, listen, King Ahaz has an agreement with Assyria. They, they conspire. Don't, don't be like him. The word uh, conspiracy has, has to do with not only binding relationship, but an intention to overthrow an existing ruler. They conspired together to overthrow and to take care of Syria and Israel. They conspired for their protection. They weren't trusting God. I said this two weeks ago, and, and I think it's true today. Bad choices and unfaithful decisions are made when we are controlled by fear. They conspired, and now there's fear. Conspiracies and fear. Look what he says. 
Do not call conspiracies, not call upon conspiracies like the people do, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. Family, fear and faith can't coexist. Fear does not mix with faith. We've talked about this already. Look at the antidote, though, that Isaiah gives in verse 11, uh, verse 13. What is the antidote to fear? Honor God by considering his holiness and fear him above all other fears. That's the antidote for them and for us. To honor God and recognize his holiness is to perceive him, to understand him as the one who is high and lifted up, exalted king in all that he is. Just like Isaiah 6 with the seraphim crying out, holy, holy is the Lord. The whole earth is full of his glory. See him for who he is. Totally different, other from man, in his essence, glorious presence, magnificent power, his character. He is far above all things. And to deny him honor and to refuse to see him holy is to make God appear helpless, apathetic, insignificant when we don't honor him and worship him. Those who treat God as holy don't ignore his words. They listen to his word. They don't dishonor his name. They, 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 nor, they don't fail to trust in him. They trust him. They bow in awe and reverence of him and faith. They, they do what he says knowing that God is good. People who do not honor God as the holy king of the universe, they don't trust his promises. And you know what happens? What happens is we are then guided and controlled by our fears. If there was a proper fear of the Lord, there wouldn't be distrust. You got one without the other. The one had sanctified them. If you sanctify God in your hearts, you wouldn't conspire. That's that's what Isaiah is saying. And I and I like whenever we talk about the fear of the Lord, I, I just I just feel like it's important that we mention what the fear of the Lord is and is not, especially for believers. The fear of God for Christ's followers is a matter of reverence, right? It's a matter of awe. Ahaz and Judah, they were, they were terrified. There wasn't a reverence and awe of God. They were scared. They were terrified of Israel and Syria. Their hearts were, were fluttering like the wind. They should have feared the Lord. Then they wouldn't fear on what things could be done to them when they trusted in God. It was Jesus who said, don't fear those who kill the body but are not able to kill the soul. Rather, fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. In other words, your proper fear should be upon the Lord. And fear, if you're here this morning and you have not been reconciled to God through the gospel... Through the, that perfect life of Jesus, the life you could never live, through the, the atoning death of Jesus who died in your place, then there is fear of judgment. There is, there, there is the fear of God in eternal death, in eternal separation from God. We studied Hebrews and we understood that Jesus is better. If you remember, we looked at how much Jesus is better than the Old Testament prophets. He's better than, than the temple, than the land, than, and he's the better covenant. And in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 28, it says this about believers and, and their, their, what it means to fear God. It says, we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. In other words, King Jesus comes with a king and gives the kingdom to us as we step into his kingdom, live in his kingdom under the kingship of Jesus. We receive a kingdom that cannot be shaken. He says, then let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. You see, as believers and people who have trusted in Christ, Christians, our reverence and our awe is an inward reverence of the heart when we, when we see and we cling to the majesty and magnificent of all of who God is and what God has done in the gospel. We know that our sins have been forgiven. We know the judgment that belongs on our shoulders went on the back of Jesus on the cross. And therefore, gospel fear is being dominated, controlled, and captivated by the majesty of God who loves you, who died for you, who rose for you. And when we honor him with reverence and awe, our hearts are captivated by his glory, and our hearts become glad. 
and thankful. We see his goodness, his mercy, and we know that our sins have been forgiven. And then as Isaiah says, we can have protection, a sanctuary, verse 14. Look at verse 14. First part of that. And he will, if, if, if let him be your fear, verse 13, let him be your dread, and he will become a sanctuary. You see that? The, the fear of God brings us into the place of being in a sanctuary, a protection, of uh, being protected by God. He becomes our sanctuary, a place of refuge. N- not, just, not just the altar, the temple, but he's saying, come to the Lord. But for those in Judah and Israel, who do not fear God, look what it continues to read in the verse. You become a rock stumble, right? So, so a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Both kingdoms he's talking about there. You see that? A snare or a sanctuary? Do you fear God or do you fear others? And notice Notice that God is. It's like, it's not that he's, he, 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 he is who he is. He, he, he is either a sanctuary or he is a snare. He is either someone you take refuge in or he is someone that will crush you. Both kingdoms. The New Testament speaks of this reality and points really to Jesus. You know what Jesus said? Jesus said this. In Matthew, the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And, and, it, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Talk about Jesus, the cornerstone. Actually, Peter picks it up too in 1 Peter. It says that when we come to Jesus, who's a living stone, uh, uh, we're living stones rejected by men in the sight of God, chosen and precious. He says that he's, it's an honor for us who believe. But that stone that the builders rejected, that Messiah, that cornerstone that the builders rejected, that become a cornerstone, became a stumbling rock of offense. So the question for us this morning, is Jesus someone whom you are taking refuge in? Someone who has your protection, where you're forgiven of sins, you've been cleansed and washed, and, you be, and you're in the presence of God? Or has Jesus become that stumbling block? which will crush you, you will have no protection. I hope it's the, it's the former, that you've trusted Christ. In verse 16, we see a call to bind the testimony among my disciples. And uh, God is calling Isaiah to seal up the testimony, teaching my disciples. I think my disciples, I think, I think God is talking here. My disciples, they're, they're his disciples before they become Isaiah's disciples. They reveal the word of God now has an act of sealing, an affirmation. What is it attesting to? What is it affirming? What, what does God mean when he says, bind up the testimony? I think, we, if you remember back in chapter 6, what did God say? Isaiah, go and tell the people, but they're hard. their hearts are going to get hard. Even by your message, it's going to drive them further away. And now God is saying, it's done. The word of God has come to that place. The hardening has taken place. Just as it was predicted. And now Isaiah turns to these disciples and says, God has done all he has done. Seal it up. Seal it up. Trust God. So Isaiah and his disciples are told, God does what God says he's going to do. And now that is just really when you, when you see that, when, when you trust in God and you see God do what he, what he says he's going to do, that is to make us stronger in our faith, right? Have you seen God work in a way and you're just like, yes, that was an act of God. That is to strengthen our faith. What a, what a contrast to what's going on in Israel. What a contrast to what's going on in Judah. They're not trusting God. They're not resting in the Lord. Dr. Gary Smith in his comment in New American Commentary says this, the royal Davidic dynasty refused to trust God and instead depended on Assyria. 
The nation refused to accept God's promise to deliver them from Syria and Israel. They rejected God and rejoiced in their own political alliance to eliminate the threat. They continued to fear conspiracies rather than God. Isaiah's preaching from God was rejected. Therefore, all he could do was to preserve the word of God in the hearts of his disciples, end quote. Strengthen the remnant. And verse 17 18 conclude this section. Isaiah recognizing that he and all his disciples could do is just wait. Trust, wait, and hope in God. Now the word wait, when you think of wait, I don't know what you think of, but waiting is not simply waiting. It's part of that. There's a passive sense of waiting, but there is more of that. There's an active sense. So when we wait upon the Lord, we are waiting on him. Right, We're not acting in that sense. We're waiting upon him. But there's this attitude as part of this word. There's this attitude of expectant dependency upon him. In other words, we're waiting on the Lord because we know the Lord will do something. We're waiting, anticipating, looking, watching. That's the way to wait on the Lord. And Isaiah is not disheartened by the rejection of Judah. He realized that God is hiding his face from them. You see that in verse 17 and 18. He understands that God is not happy with his, with his people's sinful rejection of his word, that his face can't shine upon them, sign of disfavor. You see that there. Verse 17, his face from the house of, I'm hiding my face from the house of Jacob. That's the Judah. There's this, 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 this uh, sign of disfavor upon them. Family, that's that. We want, the, we want the blessing of God. We have to trust him. We want his face to shine upon us. We need to trust him. Right? Lastly, you see in verse 18, <laughs> Isaiah has these children. There's some funny names. I guess maybe back then it wasn't so funny, but he says, you know what? These are signs and symbols. Share Jeshub, a remnant shall return. That's what it means. He says, my children, uh, 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 God has given me these children, a remnant shall return, which is true. And Maharshala Hashbab, speeding to the plunder, hurrying to the spoil. Yes, it was a message from God that God will take care of Syria. God will destroy Israel. The very existence is a testimony to the people of God. And yet, in the midst of their rebellion, they see these signs and they Turn from him. And Isaiah is reminding them of the very last part of chapter 18. God is still dwells on Mount Zion. Family, when you see things like that, that is the mercy of God. When you get to this place where God, these people are just continually, you and I just continually rebelling against God, going against his word, going against his will, and he still shows up graciously, lovingly, mercifully. That's the grace of God. And we see that even more so in our next section, which starts with gloom and doom, but we won't end there. Verse 19. And when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living to to the teaching and to the testimony? If they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. They will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth, but behold, the stress and darkness, the gloom of anguish. And they will thrust into thick darkness. Chapter 9, verse 1. But there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former time, he, underline that, brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Natali. But in the latter time, he, underline that, has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Isaiah is saying there's a remnant that trust, but there are people who will rebel and not trust the word of the Lord. And what's happening now is they are prone to spiritism. They have no source of confidence, and therefore they're not trusting in, in, in God. 
but they're believing and trusting in myths and, and superstitions, necromancers. Reminds me of 2 Timothy 4. Paul tells this young pastor, the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itchy ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passion and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Like then, like today. People will turn their back on God, His Word. Instead, they will look And we see it all the time in our culture as well. They will look for other things. They will look in other places. They will consult the pagan spirit world because everyone has this desire to know about the future, to know what's going to happen, to know what to do, to find some rest and some peace. But they only, look what it says, whisper and mutter. That's a a ridicule of the pagan practice of that day. And Isaiah says, instead of seeking the dead for the living, they should seek the living God. He loves you. He knows you. He protects and guides you. Why would you go somewhere else? Why would you seek something for the living among the dead? The very repulsive practice of consulting the dead is a disregard of God. Denial of his existence. It is a disgraceful act of rebellion against him. In the Old Testament days, God revealed himself, not through the dead, but through his word, through the law, through his prophets. And in the latter days, Hebrew 1's, God spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed all things, uh, heir of all things, through whom he created the world. And we see this revelation of who God is through the infallible word, the word who became flesh and dwelt among us. We must turn to the word of God. We as a people, we as God's people, we as children of God, Christians are forbidden to look at things for the future like astronomy or even horoscopes to seek wisdom. It's forbidden in Scripture. We're forbidden to look at things uh, like fortune telling or, or tarot card reading. It's rebellion. It's seeking idols. I would include in this, I would include praying to dead people. Be saints that someone has declared to be or not is still divination. Exodus 20, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Deuteronomy 4, 24, for the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. God is jealous and possessive over his people. I mentioned this before, not in a crazy lunatic way, but in a loving, I made you, you belong to me, I care and love you way. Very different. He wants us to come to him about the future. He wants us to come to him with our troubles. He wants us to come to him for wisdom and what might happen and might not happen in the future. Trusting him in it and through it. If a husband sees a man flirting with his wife, he's justly not happy with it. He alone has that right. When God sees us running after idols and seeking other things and looking in other directions and trying to find things out rather than coming to him, he is right to be jealous. Worship and praise and honor belong to him and him alone. The Bible says that he gave us the word of God. He gave us the Holy Spirit to guide us and to lead us to all truth. He showed us the revelation of his son. He is our guide. He is our teacher. He doesn't want us to seek in other things. And the reason for this foolishness, look with me at verse 20, is they have no light. Verse 20, no dawn, right? They have the teaching and the testimony, but they do not speak according to the word. Why? Because they have no light. Light is found in God. Light is found in the law of God, the written revelation found in Scripture. And those who speak contrary to Scripture do not have light. They're in darkness, Anything that contradicts scripture is, is of darkness. And, and let me say that, I was thinking about this this morning. If you're not reading the word regularly, if you're not reading the word regularly, you'll fall for other things. You won't know and understand and discern that which is false. Okay, it's not about just studying false, it's about studying the truth. 
And you have to be in God's word. And when someone says, you know what? Give your life to Jesus. You could have a jet. You'd be like, yeah, I've been reading my Bible. That doesn't sound right. You just tell that knee that's killing you, be gone. No more pain. It's not real. You know, it's that, nah, he was crucified on a Roman cross. That hurt, I'm sure. Like, something's not right. You have to be in the word. Verses 21 through 22 speaks simply of those who refuse the light, refuse the truth, who surrounded themselves with occult practices. They plunged themselves further and further into gloom, famine, despair, darkness. They're looking around, walking around hungry. See that? Distressed, angry, hopeless. Verse 22 tells us that they looked up, they looked down, they looked around. No help. No help at all. Darkness has swallowed up the light when light is extinguished, and now they are in darkness and gloom. As I was writing this, I thought, I wonder how many times myself, maybe you can relate to this, how many times are we walking around with anguish and grief and darkness and gloom? Because we are carrying it around and not trusting God. How many times have we just cling to, hold on to, not release, not trust, but just hold tight to the things when God says, give them to me. Don't raise your hand. Maybe you're here this morning and that's exactly what's happening. And God is saying, listen, trust him. Trust him, give it to him. Leave it in his hands. Leave it in his hands. Don't carry around the burden yourself. Give it to the Lord. Don't walk in darkness. Don't walk in gloom. Don't walk in anguish. Jesus said in John 3, this is judgment. Light has come into the world. And people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Whoever does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so it can be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. That word carried out means done by the power of God. They're enraged. They look up, verse 21, verse 22, look to the earth. Gloom, anguish. They will be thrust into thick darkness. And we get to chapter 9, verse 1. There's a transitional verse. I love it. It's so much, I'm finding so much of this in Isaiah. I just love it. When things look the worst, God shows up. When things look the worst, God shows up. He moves from darkness to light, from gloom to grace. And what's so wonderful about this with Isaiah, he says, look, you can't do it yourself. And God just shows up again in Isaiah. We're powerless in ourselves and God shows up. Look at verse nine, uh, chapter 9, verse 1. But there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun, the land of Natali. But now in latter times, he, same one, has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. God comes to his people at the place where they are suffering the most. I mentioned that earlier. Galilee was the place that got beat up regularly. They, are, they knew uh, what, what, uh, what uh, slavery was like in Galilee. And God shows up. God shows up mightily in Galilee. And they are, according to Matthew chapter 4, they are the first ones to see the light of Jesus. It is in his ministry and this place and this verse that is mentioned in Matthew chapter 4. Now when he heard that John had been arrested, Jesus, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he, Jesus, went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, by the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region, a shadow of death. On them a light was dawned. Do you see that? It is that place. 
It is that place. It is that transition. There's gloom and doom, but God's not done with his people. There's this triumphant son and king that is promised. The dawn awakens in the region that first experienced judgment, and now Matthew opens up and says, no, that's Jesus. He's proclaimed. How great, listen, how great our God is. How magnificent his grace is. The ones who walk in darkness, all of a sudden a light is shining, verse 2. The people who walk in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them light is shown. You, talking about the one he in verse 1, you have multiplied the nations, you have increased its joy, and they rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, and they are glad when they divide the spoil for the yoke of his burden, the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Gloom will not have its final stay, say. Gloom will not have its final say. God is not done with his people. Though they experience the result of rejection and rebellion, God is going to use this as an opportunity to show forth his grace, his goodness, and demonstrate his salvation in the land. In the land that got beat up, in the land that was dark, in the land that was gloom and anguish, God shows up with a great light. Every human attempt to bring light failed. And yet God shows up. He doesn't show up because he has to show up. He doesn't show up because of some human effort. He shows up by grace. This is a matter of grace. The light, the joy, the peace of his coming age is, is in sharp contrast to the broken, the gloom, and the darkness of that day and of our day. There's light. Jesus said, I'm the light of the world, remember? Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness but have the light of life. And all human history, no matter how wonderful or how great or how, how smart we think we are and trying to, to have a plan for some sort of righteous government, some sort of righteous people, human heart, the sin of humanity creeps in and makes it impossible. Now, some are better than others, but nowhere has been a form of righteous government that we see here. Judah, with unfaithful king, Speaks of a king, a child, a child. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, verse 6. The government shall be upon his shoulders, his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and of peace. There will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth forevermore. The zeal of the Lord will do this. Let's look at this briefly for a few minutes. Number one, everything in, this is so cool. When you look at chapter nine, verses two, one, two, three, following, especially two through following, all the events Isaiah is talking about in the Hebrew is, is assured happened, done already. It's, it's in the future, but he's speaking to it as if it has already been done, right? It's already been done. The child is this climax that Isaiah has been talking about in chapter 7, verse 14, how God's going to care for and, and provide for his people. The reign of this son is, exp is expressing this, this saving power we see in chapter 6, uh, uh, verses 6 and following. He will, look, verse 3, multiply the nations. It's going to happen. He will increase its joy. They're going to dance and, and, and be uh, overwhelmed with joy. The nation is enlarged. The people are rejoicing. He said the joy is like the day of great harvest. The people joy and jump for, just jump for joy. They see this massive harvest, this beautiful harvest that they've taken in. It's also joy like on a great day of a, Final victory. You see that in verse 3. When you divide the spoil. You see that in verse 3? Like the day of Midian. You know the story of Midian? It's found in Judges. Gideon defeats them. And the Midianites 
who, who were overwhelmingly going to take out Israel, God caused the terror of the Lord to come upon them. And with a small army of a hundred men, uh, Gideon rips through the darkness and the evil forces of Midian explode and implode upon themselves and destroy one another. And as a result, the oppressive yoke, the rod of his shoulders, look what it says, the staff of the oppressor was broken. And the trampling boots, verse 5, bloody garments were destined for fire. Here's our liberator. He's not only ending wars, he is ceasing them. To, he doesn't even have to, it's not even like he is, he is Using war and there's this big battle going on. He's going to end it. He's going to completely end it. The boots and, and, and the garments will be done. There'll be no need for war. Every mechanism of tyranny will be burned up. I mean, you see this, this, this unbelievable victory of this one that Isaiah is talking about. Who is he? Who is he? Who is this, who is this one He, you, son. Who is the one that God is going to use to bring an eternal kingdom? A child, he says. Look at verse 6 again. A son. The word for in verse 6, for, can be translated because. So I I I I want you to see that this morning. Rejoicing. Big harvest. Rejoicing. Of, of, of a government, uh, over a, a government, there's a rejoicing that the, um, uh, there is a battle that's been won. We're rejoicing because of a son, because of a child. God will deliver his people through a child. He's to be a ruler. Look at the names for him. This child will, will be a wonderful counselor. The government will rest upon his shoulders. In other words, Jesus is going to have the entire universe resting on his shoulders. He will will uplift and he will hold and be responsible for the nations. He will be called Wonderful Counselor. The word is wonder, really. He he will have wonder. There will be extraordinary miracles and, and beauty and glory and wonder. He will give great advice. He will give counsel. He will be the mighty God, the all-powerful God. The word mighty is used of warriors. The word God, El, in Hebrew is the most common. He will be God. He will be the mighty God. Speaking of wonderful counsel, mighty God, someone wrote, I read it this week. Someone wisely said this, power uninformed by wise counsel and counsel powerless to act are both unfruitful, end quote. But that's not what you have. You have this Wonder, counselor. We have this mighty, everlasting God together. He's the everlasting father. Now, when you see that verse, everlasting father, in verse six, he's not talking about father, God the father, God the son, God the Holy Spirit. He's talking about the character of this son, that he will love his his people like a father. He's the everlasting father. He's not just the father. He's an eternal one. He's the prince of peace. He'll bring peace between God and man and between man and man. There'll be a wholeness. There'll be a, a, a social and political and spiritual economic wholeness. He's the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, and he is the prince of peace. Verse seven, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be what? No end. No end to his kingdom. On the throne of David and over his kingdom. Listen, this one will reign over his kingdom forever. He will reign on David's throne, fulfilling the promise of 2 Samuel 7, that God would raise up from the seed, from the lineage of David, a king, who will establish a kingdom in righteousness and justice. He is the king, and the zeal of the Lord will do this. The passion of God will do this. He does it because of his own passion and his own glory, and he does it for the passion and love that he has for one another. And let me end this way. The gospel according to Matthew opens up with these words. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. 
Jesus is the fulfillment. Jesus is the Emmanuel. Jesus is the reigning king, the son of David. Jesus will bring forth the kingdom and that will reflect his own righteous and just character. But you know what's so great about this? You know what's so wonderful about this description of Jesus being all these things? This eternal son who is the light of the world, this eternal son who will multiply the nations and bring eternal joy, this royal son who will break the yoke of slavery and oppression, this royal son whose government will rest upon his shoulders, this royal son whose name is Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Prince of Peace, this royal son who will reign with with justice and righteousness, this royal son who will do all that he's commissioned to do by the Father. Know what's so great about that? He'll not do it by conquering the first time his enemies with a mighty power, but humbling himself and laying down his life for you and for me. He will go to the cross before he will get his crown. He doesn't come first with power and dominance, but humble death. He doesn't come first with swords and bows, but in meekness, riding on a donkey's colt. The king doesn't come first to defeat the evil government, but he goes to die on a Roman cross to defeat sin, death, hell, and Satan. And when you see that this morning, when you see all who this king is, when you see the fulfillment of all God's promises, when you see the mighty king Jesus first coming to go to a cross so that your sins can be forgiven, so that you can be set free from the power of death and sin and Satan. When you see that who he is and what he's done for you, how could you not trust him? How could you not? This is who he is. This is what it will be like when he returns. He will establish his eternal government in the new heavens and the new earth. You could trust him with your problems. You could trust him and lay down your troubles to him. For he has gone to great lengths to redeem and reconcile you. Will you trust him? I want you to see the glory of Christ this morning. But I also want you to see the humble one who died and rose and we'll return again. Father, thank you for the promise of your word. Thank you for the fulfillment of your word. You have done all that you said you were going to do. And in the midst of, of anguish, in the midst of, of gloom, in the midst of, of, of rebellion, conspiracies, and, and, and people running from you, you have shown so much patience and so much grace and so much mercy. Help us, Lord, to see the one to whom grace flows. His name is Jesus. He is the mighty God, the wonderful counselor, He is the everlasting father, the prince of peace. He will come and he will establish his eternal kingdom. But until then, Lord, help us to trust you. Help us to rest in you. Help us to find refuge in you. Help us to bring to you all our troubles, anxieties to you, for you care about us. And Lord, as we respond now in singing, we pray that we release that to you. And we thank you for all that you're going to do in our response. In Jesus' good name, amen.